The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, two of the biggest trials of the year have verdicts within a week of each other, and each was dramatic as the other. First, Court TV's Chanley Painter joins me to break down the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, where he was found not guilty on all counts. Then I'll discuss the results of the killing of Ahmad Arbery trial with Court TV's Ted Rollins. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for listening. And this really, what, what, what an historic month at Court TV, where we had two huge trials with, uh, you know, national interest in these trials, big high-profile cases happening simultaneously. And uh, really amazing to see what happened and, and what the, the results were because you had these two big cases with some similarities and completely different outcomes. And of course, I'm talking about uh, the, the case involving the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery, where three defendants were convicted down in Brunswick, Georgia, uh, that case happening. Uh, and, and the first case I want to talk about, though, is the one that happened in Kenosha involving Kyle Rittenhouse, who I think people now recognize his name. Uh, this this trial became big enough, this story became big enough that you say the name Rittenhouse, uh, people know who you're talking about, who shot three people uh, during the Kenosha riots, killed two of them, and uh, claimed self-defense. And in something that you don't see too often here on Court TV, um, was found not guilty. Take a listen. State of Wisconsin versus Kyle Rittenhouse. As to the first count of the information, Joseph Rosenbaum, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the second count of the information, Richard McGinnis, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the third count of the information, unknown male, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fourth count of the information, Anthony Huber, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fifth count of the information, Gage Grosskreutz, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse, not guilty. A clean sweep. I mean, it is rare on court TV that you hear that. It's rare that you hear that in, in, in most criminal trials because prosecutors win most of the time. They didn't hear an incredibly dramatic moment. And I want to bring in Court TV legal correspondent Chanley Painter, who was in Kenosha for all of this in the courtroom during this moment and joins us now. Chanley, great to see you. Hey, Vinny. Thanks for having me. Take us inside the courtroom for that moment, because, again, it's extremely rare that you hear not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty uh, in, in a criminal trial. Uh, this one, obviously, super high profile. Uh, describe for us what it was like. Yeah, Vinny, I was just thinking about this. In the years I've been inside courtrooms for court TV, watching verdicts unfold, this one stands out because I don't think I've ever been in a courtroom with a full acquittal of a defendant. And so that's what made this one for the history books, really, because Kyle Rittenhouse's reaction to the not guilties. I've never seen a defendant 
react in such a way of relief. He virtually started sobbing and collapsed out of the view of the camera into the defense counsel table and started hugging his attorneys. And even before that, Vinny, his mother, Wendy Rittenhouse, inside the courtroom, when the first not guilty was read out loud, she let out a huge gasp. Uh, it was audible. Everyone sort of looked towards her in that moment, and she clung to her family members sitting next to her. Another thing that was different about this verdict, Vinny, is I watch a lot of jurors. That's my job every day almost, is to stare at jurors every day, trying to gauge what I can from their reaction or lack of reaction. But this was a jury, uh, seven women, five men, spent three and a half days deliberating the fate of Kyle Rittenhouse, all five counts. They come into the courtroom for the reading of the verdict. And usually jurors don't look towards the defense or the defendant when they enter the courtroom pretty solemn looking. This jury seemed more upbeat to me than I've seen compared in other cases we've covered here. It was almost as if they were confident. They sat up in their seats and virtually all of them would look over towards the defense counsel table. The four person, a woman in her fifties probably handed over the verdict forms. And then she did not take her eyes off Kyle Rittenhouse the entire time the verdict was read. And it was like, they felt good about this verdict. And then the reaction in the courtroom from that side was just, they melted. Now, the other side, we have to talk about the other side because two people died here and a third was seriously injured. And the family members of Joseph Rosenbaum, Anthony Huber, sitting in there clearly disappointed, overwhelmed with grief. They were sobbing really uncontrollably during that time. And to the point they didn't react or even speak to anyone when they left the courthouse, Benny. So depending on what side you were on and how you saw this case unfold, I mean, you either happy or just totally devastated. I know. And, and for Kyle Rittenhouse, this is, was a young defendant. You know, we, we've, we've seen younger on court TV, but 18 years old, 17 years old at the time of the shooting. And, and I always think about that moment. What, what is it like for the defendant himself? And you're 18 years old, the rest of his life was going to be decided by 12 strangers, 12 strangers. And, and, and the way you're describing it to me, Chanley, I, I think those 12 people understood that. And, and, and one of the reasons coming into the courtroom and looking at Kyle Rittenhouse is, oh, I want to see his, re it's almost like when you, and I don't want to say that this is going to come out sounding wrong, but it's almost like you give someone a present. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you want to see what their reaction is. Now, this was not a present. This, and, and I don't want to minimize the work that this jury did. And they didn't look the other way. They looked at the evidence. I saw the evidence, the videotapes, everything else. I understand it. But to me, that's, that's the analogy that you want to, you understand the moment. You understand what this means to everyone in the courtroom. And your eyes are on Kyle Rittenhouse. Because for an 18-year-old, either he's going to be locked up for the rest of his life or he's going to walk out of that courtroom. And he walked out. Yes. He walked out. In fact, he ran out. That, that was the, yeah. I've never seen that before either. Literally, the defendant, almost before the jury exited, literally ran out of the courtroom. I was curious as to why, Benny. I thought maybe he was so happy. He wanted to go run and meet his family and celebrate. 
And I learned later it was for security reasons because that was very much a concern for the Rittenhouse family and the whole courthouse area during that time. And so he was scuttled out of there really quickly. Yeah. And this was that kind of case. I mean, passion on both sides. People um, understood what this case uh, meant and and there there were real emotions associated with it. And you had, in a rare occasion, you had people supporting both sides in a criminal trial. It is rare, ladies and gentlemen. It's rare that you have a, a split in support for a defendant accused of murder and, and for um, people who have been killed. So um, I want to take a listen to the uh, really accomplished attorney of Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, Mark Richards, who, who spoke after the verdict. I've known Tom Binger for a long time. I knew him when he was a civil lawyer. Um, I'm disappointed with some of the things he did, um, and I've said why. Such as what? Putting on the Kandiri brothers when you know they're lying. Um, changing your prosecution, going with provocation after you say that my client chased him down and shot him in the back. Um, calling him an active shooter when he's not. You know, justice is done when the truth is reached. And I don't know that it's set up to do that, but a prosecutor is supposed to seek the truth. It's not about winning. And this case became about winning. And that's probably why it got so personal. You know what Mark Richards said there, I, I say on the air all the time, and I said it a lot during this trial. I was not happy with some of the things that this district attorney did, this assistant district attorney, uh, Thomas Binger, did. Uh, I, I think they were, um, I think he was not being truthful with the jury, not seeking the truth, and not being 100% ethical. This is so problematic. And, and, and that was really the, the thrust of the reaction of Mark Richards. It, it was a, a, a disappointment in what the assistant DA did here, Chanley. Yeah, there were some questionable tactics, to say the least, from the prosecution during the trial. And at one point, even during the testimony of Kyle Rittenhouse, I mean, Binger, he's a 14-year prosecutor, Vinny. I know we've both been prosecutors. There's just things you know not to do inside a courtroom. And the judge yelled at him that day after the second offense of, I think first was you know commenting on Kyle's right to remain silent uh, or asking a question that the about evidence the judge had ruled inadmissible. And that's when, you know, the jury was sent out and judge um, virtually yelled at Thomas Binger uh, for quite a while. And not only that, Benny, the allegation of the drone video. Remember that the defense said, look, the prosecution gave us this low res copy of key. I mean, huge piece of evidence for the prosecution, this drone video. And it was three times less as clear than what the prosecution showed the jury. Just things like that to the point that the judge outside the presence of the jury, again, uh, saying that he didn't believe Thomas Finger was acting in good faith and all of that. So because of the acquittal, all those motions from the defense for the mistrial, for this alleged prosecutorial overreaching and bad faith conduct is now null and void, right? Because he was acquitted. But if there had been a conviction, that's something that would have been taken up by this judge and no telling what else it would have revealed. Yeah. And, and, but he wasn't doing his job. Right. Your job as the prosecutor isn't to isn't to win, right? Right. It's to seek the truth and seek justice, whatever it is. Yeah. And you know, he put on uh, some witnesses who were obviously lying. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously lying. And 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 
for, for a reason. And then you are, are changing your theory uh, of the case in the middle of the trial. What is that? You told the jury in your opening statement that, that Kyle Rittenhouse was chasing Joseph Rosenbaum and shot him in the back. And, and the video showed something completely different. I don't understand why he, why he did what he did. Uh, the only conclusion I can come to is that he doesn't like guns. He, he doesn't he doesn't agree with the open carry laws of Wisconsin. Right. That um, whatever it is or this was such a political case and he had political pressure on him or he just sees the world a certain way that uh, people should not be walking around with AR-15s. But that changed the law in Wisconsin. No, I totally agree. He let politics seep into the courtroom. I think it was very clear sitting in there. You could tell. And. That has no place. It's the law and the facts. And some people even question if these if this should have even been charged in the first place, given the facts, the law in Wisconsin and what the videos showed. And you lose a lot of credibility inside a courtroom, like you said, when you say one thing in opening statements and your evidence doesn't support it. And let me tell you, it's cases like this that have fueled um, laws like stand your ground. You don't have stand your ground in Wisconsin. And the reason you have stand your ground is it gives people accused uh, an opportunity before a full jury trial, right, to get immunized from prosecution, get immunized from civil lawsuits if, in fact, you are standing your ground acting in self-defense. And if this case had been in Florida, I don't know, Mark Richards might have had a, a, an immunization hearing and this thing may have gone away and never been in front of a jury. Um, but that's one of the reasons for stand your ground laws is sometimes when you have cases like this, and, and I'm sure there's going to be civil lawsuits as well. And, and, you know, there's a different legal standard, et cetera. But for someone acting in self-defense, uh, it becomes expensive and, and very difficult to defend yourself against, against the, uh, the state. But here the defense was well-funded by money that was raised and incredibly good. Yes. I mean, that's yes. the bottom line. Some of line. the best. This, yes. Some of the best we have seen at Court TV. It, it was a, an amazing job that they did. Um, let's, let's, let's talk about what, what you were mentioning though. There are always two sides to this and we can, we can never forget that. And, and despite the fact that it was a justified homicide and that's what our jury has told us, this was a justified homicide. There is still a dad who doesn't have his son and, um, he sees it the way he sees it. I would never try to convince him otherwise, but let's take a listen to Anthony Huber's dad. We're, we're still in shock here, you know, um, you know, that guy gets to run free and he's now a, he's now a hero. And this is my son right here. This is Anthony. You know, we lost our son and there's no justice right now for our family and there's no closure. And there wasn't going to be justice in that Kenosha court with that judge. I disagree with the dad there that this judge made calls against both sides, against both sides. And and I think that's a I think that's a misinterpretation of what happened inside that courtroom, because the prosecutor did certain things that were so, so out of bounds that some judges would have dismissed the case with prejudice on the spot. Absolutely. You're right. Judge Schrader was fair inside the courtroom. And he, he's known, he has this reputation, but he were, he, during a trial, because the defendant is presumed innocent, he 
his reputation is to allow, let's give the jury as much as possible to make this decision. Someone's life is on the line. But if there is a conviction, he's very strict. You know, he follows the law and he seems he's well-reasoned. He always did his homework. He would take a break and go read the case and make sure that he's uh, making decisions. And he's been on the bench for almost 40 years, Benny. He's very experienced, knows what he's doing, uh, has been reelected, you know, term after term here uh, for a reason. Absolutely. And I, th- I thought he did a, a, a great job. And there, there were things that the prosecution did that were outrageous. They were absolutely outrageous, but they were still given the opportunity to give the case to the jury. Now, for Anthony Huber's dad, and, and I understand, and even for Anthony Huber, um, at the moment, he very much in his mind may have felt like he, what he was doing was right. That he, that there was a, a there was a shooter out there that has to be stopped. I'm going to do what I can to take his gun away, knock him down, and detain him. Unfortunately, th- that's not the way the law is set up. We don't put the jury is not told to put themselves in the shoes of Anthony Huber. They're told to put you in the shoes of Kyle Rittenhouse, and Kyle Rittenhouse is running away from Huber, is running towards police. And doesn't do anything until he is assaulted. Exactly. And jurors are instructed whether or not they like the law, agree with the law, or think thinks it should be something else. They have to follow the law. That's what they have to agree to before they are impaneled as a member of the jury. And that's what they did here. It's difficult because you know, I spoke with Anthony's girlfriend, Hannah Gidding, several times. And she was there with Anthony that night, uh, Benny, and, and told me what they were doing, why they were there, what they were thinking. And in the moment before Anthony Huber ran, she said, yes, he thought Kyle was an active shooter. That's who Anthony was. And it's just so unfortunate. You know, not everyone is going to feel that this was a just outcome. It just depends on the perspective that you're looking at. And it's the nature of our system. It's the nature of our system. Right. Um, Chanley, I know you have to go, but I I just before you go, just what is going to be the lasting image in your mind when you look back at this case, whether it's, you know, a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now? It's going to be the fifth not guilty and Kyle's reaction collapsing into the table. I think that really is the defining image of this case and symbolizes what it means, not only for him, but for self-defense law and for the outcome of this case. And the importance of cameras being in the courtroom, because I, I felt a lot of people maybe had skewed vo- viewpoints going into this case. But if you watched every minute from beginning to end, the evidence unfold, the law that the jury was given, you will see why he reacted the way he did in that moment. That's such a great point, Chanley. Such a great point. There was a lot of, unfortunately, in our own world of media, a ton of misreporting of the facts of this case. And it still continues after the verdict. But if you watch the case on court TV, you'll get the facts, you'll get the law, and you may have a better understanding of the verdict. Chanley Painter, thanks so much. Thanks, Vinny. All right, when we come back, going to talk about that other big trial in uh, Georgia, the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. Three men now facing life without the possibility of parole. Ted Rollins will join me on that one next. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. 
Court TV, your front row seat to justice. So the situation was much, much different in Georgia than it was in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And, and, and what I'm talking about different in terms of the outcome, right? In Kenosha, a huge win for the defense. In Georgia, an overwhelming victory for the prosecution. Three men, Gregory McMichael, his son, Travis McMichael, and their neighbor, Roddy Bryan, all convicted of murder, all facing life without the possibility of parole. There is no other way to say, but this was an overwhelming, Overwhelming victory for the prosecution. And this is a, a case where self-defense was part of the defense as well. Uh, there was an extra hurdle for these defendants, which was uh, trying to convince the jury that this was some form of a lawful citizen's arrest. Uh, but the jury didn't buy it and ultimately convicted all three men. Joining me now is Court TV anchor Ted Rollins, who spent a lot of time uh, down in that part of Georgia investigating this case on the ground in the neighborhood, uh, talking to folks. Uh, Ted also produced an amazing documentary on the case. Ted, when you look at this verdict of guilty for all three, uh, to me, it, it was not at all surprising And I think the only question any of us had going into this was, what about the guy who didn't have a gun but had the cell phone with the camera that recorded the whole thing? Yeah, William Roddy Bryant. That was that was the big one. And uh, you know, the the law allowed the jury to to find him guilty. The evidence was there, and more importantly, Linda Donakowski was there. I could, I can't say enough about this prosecutor, this woman who was put in um, a, a very difficult position to come from a, a different county near Atlanta to come and try this case on the road. And uh, she just killed it. And she killed it throughout the case. But most importantly, in her clothes and her rebuttal, she gave the jury the law in a, in a text, in a context that mirrored the facts of the case, which led them to convict Roddy Bryant. And you could, you could argue whether Roddy Bryant deserves the same punishment as the Big Michaels all day long. But the, the letter of the law allowed the jury to make this decision, and the prosecutor got him there. And it, she wasn't going up against any slouches. She was going up against some really, really good defense attorneys. And, and it wasn't one-on-one. It was one versus three. Right. You had uh, three defendants, you had three sets of defense attorneys that you had to battle against. And as a prosecutor, sometimes that can be a little bit daunting. Obviously, she had help on her team. But still, when once you're once you're on your feet and in the courtroom, um, you've got to be prepared to battle three sets of attorneys. You don't know what they're going to do. And they're all very, very accomplished. And and the real problem here, Ted, the way I see it is that. In this case, the shooting victim was the one who was pursued. The shooting victim did not initiate the confrontation. The confrontation was initiated by the defendants. They're the ones who chose to pursue Ahmad Arbery for whatever reason. Whatever reason, the bottom line is, to me, that completely changes this situation, makes it 
180 degrees different than what we saw in Kenosha. Kenosha, the guy with the gun is running away, trying to get away from people. In this case, the guys with the guns are pursuing the person who got shot. You can't start a fight and then claim self-defense. And that was articulated by Donikowski. And and as a side note, if people are interested in this case, you should look at the interview that Vinny did with the prosecution team afterward. It is fantastic. Uh, CourtTV.com, find it. Because it really gave gave us a a sense of um, their strategy throughout trial. And uh, it was just a fantastic interview. But you're right, Vinny, to your point that you can't bring the gun and start the fight and then say, oh, well, it's easy. what were we supposed to do? We were just protecting ourselves. Yeah, that's that's the difference. You know, if people want to look at other differences, to me, that that is the fundamental difference between these two cases. And yes, there's other circumstances and facts uh, uh, that aren't exactly parallel. But to me, when you're talking about self-defense, that's what it's about. Who started it? Who started it? And here it couldn't be clearer from the words of the defendants themselves to the video that they started it. They started. And and when you start it, you don't get to finish it and claim self-defense. Let's take a listen, though, uh, to the uh, the winning team as they spoke after the victory. We had so many people on the team that helped to bring justice for Ahmad and his family. And we really, really appreciate the support that we had and the faith from Mr. Arbery okay, and from Ms. Wanda Cooper-Jones, who have been with us and have put their faith in us and trusted us to bring justice for Ahmad. And the verdict today was a verdict based on the facts, yes, based on the evidence. Yes. And that was our goal, was to bring that to that jury so that they could do the right thing. Because the jury system works in this country. And when you present the truth to people and they can see it, they will do the right thing. And that's what this jury did today in getting justice for Ahmaud Arbery. Yeah. And it comes back, you know, I was talking about this with Chanley, Ted, that there was this great quote from Mark Richards talking about the job of a prosecutor is to seek the truth. And here you have a prosecutor that, again, is doing her job, which was bringing out the truth of what happened that day. You know, I, I, I've watched the video tons of times. I've listened to the arguments, but it just seemed like for the defense, they were trying to fit something, trying to find a way to fit the conduct into the law. When you just look at it, your gut tells you, no, that's wrong. That is wrong. But they tried to squeeze it into this citizen's arrest law when we know that's not really what was going on there. These guys, you know, they wanted to take charge. They they didn't have the patience to wait for police. They felt like they were the police and they wanted to um, solve the, the crime for this, this fictitious crime wave that was occurring in their neighborhood. There was a little bit of, you know, a couple of things happened, but they, they put together this, this fictional crime wave and, and it had to be this guy that was the, the, the reason why there was this enormous uh, wave of criminal behavior in Satilla Shores. Yeah, I think they wanted to be heroes. And frankly, you know, from their perspective, it was serious. And they, because of the Facebook posts and the, you know, the drumming it up and the interaction with the officer earlier where they're all participating, looking for this black man who was in their neighborhood that nobody knew. It was building and building and building. And the McMichaels, they were going to be the heroes. Travis, get your gun. We got him. 
that they didn't call 911. Greg McMichael didn't, never calls 911. Travis claimed he thought his dad did. The only time they call him is at the very, very end. Had they called 911, there was an officer less than about a mile away. This would have never happened. But no, they wanted to hunt and and, and, and capture their prey and show it off to the neighborhood and say, yeah, we're the Mac Michaels and we got you covered. Now, the Roddy Bryant scenario, I do argue is different. I don't, I do have some issues with him being fa- facing life in prison for what he did. He didn't have a weapon. He didn't know what he, they were doing, didn't know what he was doing, thought he was helping a neighbor. Um, it's just a different case. And people that argue that it isn't, I think, are dead wrong. Absolutely. But, Ted, the point you just made is huge, is absolutely huge, that if they had called police initially with that officer one mile away, this chase took, like, more than five minutes. That officer would have been there before there was ever that moment in, in the middle of the street where – Travis McMichael has his weapon and is face-to-face with Mount Aubrey. Never would have happened if they called police first and followed second. And the crazy thing about it is the officer would have been act- interacted with the Mount Aubrey and would have let him go. Yeah. Because he didn't steal anything. He didn't do anything. It wouldn't have been like, oh, they'd have taken him into custody. and he'd be No, he'd have investigated and said, well, kid, don't come around here anymore and don't go to that house under construction. Because that, that's the deal that they made with Larry English. They would find the individual, question him to see why he was at the home, and then give him a warning. That's what would have transpired had they called 911. And it's all about having just – and Roddy Bryan actually said this. We saw it on on body cam where he he sort of questions and is thinking out loud like, like yeah, we were following him. And should we have been? I don't know. And he kind of shrugs his shoulders. And it, it was that moment of reflection that should have taken place before the chase. That should we be chasing him? Like, grab your gun. Or how about Greg McMichael saying, well, all right, wait, we're grabbing our gun. We're jumping in it. Wait, should we be doing this? A small moment of reflection before you take the law into your own hands. And before you become, um, you know, the, the local neighborhood watch enforcer, a moment of reflection about what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And, and, and how, is, how would this potentially play out? Like what happens when I come face to face with him? All of this, if you took that one moment to reflect, none of this happens. Or if you just, even if you wanted to engage in this ridiculous chase, called police first, they would have been there. Um, amazing, Ted. I, I Throughout the trial, I never thought about that because the officer was so close. The call five minutes earlier, it's done. It's done. All right. Let, let's take a listen to um, um, Kevin Goff, who's the attorney for Roddy Bryan. And, and I'm with you, Ted, that to me, this is the one lingering issue in the case. And if you look at all three defendants, do you see them all the same way? And um, personally, I don't either. And, and the, one of the big parts of it is, is the mens rea is, is what is on your mind. Like McMichael, the McMichaels, Travis and Greg, both are there to stop and confront this guy. Roddy Bryant just jumped into a chase and, and he sees a neighbor chasing someone and doesn't really know why. And, you know, makes a bad decision. 
obviously, but doesn't have that same state of mind, which is an important part of our system of criminal justice is what was what was the intent of a criminal defendant? What were they thinking at the time? Here's Kevin Goff. Well, obviously, we're very disappointed with the verdict, but we must respect it. That's the American way. Uh, We will file a motion for new trial on Mr. Bryant's behalf next week. Uh, We believe that he stands wrongly convicted and that uh, ultimately uh, there will be justice here for Roddy Bryant. Um, But it's not my place today to be criticizing anyone else. We have a judge who's worked so very hard uh, trying to ensure a fair trial. We've got a lot of people in the system here. We've got the sheriff, the clerk's office. Uh, so many people involved in this, certainly the Cobb County District Attorney's Office, all trying to make sure uh, that we had a verdict that would stand the test of time. Uh, I don't think, it, for Mr. Bryan, I feel like he has an excellent appeal, and there are some serious, difficult issues that will have to be addressed. But the important thing today is, you know, with our, the way things are going in our country right now, is to try and maintain a sense of justice and we certainly appreciate all the hard efforts of so many people, including these 12 jurors who sacrificed so much to be here and deliberate. And, uh, you know, although Mr. Bryan's disappointed, uh, we certainly appreciate the efforts that were made. OK, talking about the appeal, let's just talk about this for a second, uh, Ted, for Roddy Bryan. Again, he's the one in the second pickup truck by himself, kind of joins the chase midway through and records it on his cell phone, does not have a gun and records the the killing, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery by Travis McMichael. Um, You know, there's been this uh, analogy a lot of people do, like, like, you know, if there's a bank robbery that's taking place and and you're the person who is driving the getaway car, you don't go in the bank, but during the course of the bank robbery, they shoot and kill somebody, you're still on the hook for murder. But for me, that analogy doesn't work. Because you're part of a plot to rob a bank. What what part of a plot is Roddy Bryan a part of? There was no there was no planning in, in what was taking place here. It's a different mindset. And to me, is there enough of a nexus between the felonies that he's been convicted of and the actual death of Ahmad Arbery, the shooting death? And to me, that's an interesting interesting legal issue that I think uh, an appellate court in Georgia is going to have to figure out. Yeah, I I thought Kevin Goff raised a good issue in his close that he argued that there was a reset. Even if you believe that Roddy Bryant was involved in boxing in Ahmaud Arbery on the street before Travis McMichael actually shot him about probably two minutes before. Goff argues that there's a reset. And the reset starts when Travis McMichael jumps out of the pickup truck, then moves from the driver's side to confront Ahmaud Arbery in the front of the pickup truck. No longer now is this this pickup and pickup boxing in Ahmaud Arbery. It is a confrontation between Travis and Ahmaud Arbery. And he argues that there should have been a reset there. And that now Roddy Bryan is a spectator, has nothing to do with those decisions. I thought that was compelling. I also think that the, you know, the appeal, there's going to be a lot of different issues. And, and one of them is going to be the classic ineffective assistance of counsel. And it will come back down to why the heck did they not ask for separation until the 11th hour? There's no reason why 
in my opinion, Kevin Goff should not file, have filed a motion to get his client away from the McMichaels in that courtroom. Yeah, that it's a, it's a different case because your whole case then is predicated upon just pointing the finger at the two defendants who were not there, the ones with the guns. And to me, that's very, very powerful, very powerful. And, and we'll see, you know, at the end of the day, what he did was wrong. He, he's, he just assumed things, I think, when he, he jumped into the chase, which you, you can't do. But his mens rea was different. And, and I'm, but under Georgia law, felony murder, felony murder is felony murder. There's no way around it. There's no discretion. There's no way he's going to get like, all right, he'll get 20 years and maybe uh, be eligible for parole in 10 or something. No, no, it's not an option. The only option is life without the possibility of parole. Uh, let's take a listen to the attorneys uh, for the uh, one of the attorneys uh, uh, for the McMichaels. This is a very difficult day for Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael. These are two men who honestly believe that what they were doing was the right thing to do. However, the Glenn County jury has spoken. They have found them guilty and they will be sentenced. And that is a very disappointing and sad verdict for myself and for Bob and for our team. But we also recognize that this is a day of celebration for the Arbery family. We cannot tear our eyes away from the way that they feel about this. And we understand that they feel they have gotten justice today. We respect that. We honor that because we honor this jury trial system. That was an interesting Interesting comment afterwards, and I'm trying to read into it. It, it, um, And I guess it's the nature of the case, the nature of the case, because it's rare, Ted, I think that you hear after a criminal trial and a murder trial that much um, about the family and and talking about victory and and all that. It, It really struck me as being quite different. We don't normally hear that. Yeah, it was a bit of a head scratcher, and it, I think you're right. It is the case. It's the enormity of it. It's that everybody was um, waiting to hear and waiting to hear sour grapes, and Jason Sheffield took the high road and wasn't going to give it to him. He'll give it to him on an appeal. Um, what he writes or what, whoever does the appeal will, will be much different in tone. But, yeah, I think it was the, the, the magnitude of the situation and his awareness of it, and, and he wasn't going to – give anybody any ammunition yeah and there's and there's no harm in, in doing what he did it, it probably was the uh, appropriate way to address a, a very potentially volatile situation afterwards um but you know i would expect a little bit more about his clients who he believes was wrong were wrongfully convicted um but he did say that they were doing they believe they were doing the right thing and what are your thoughts ted about what really is going in their minds? Because they're facing a federal trial, too, for a hate crime, right? They're facing hate crime charges in, in federal court, right? Which obviously doesn't really, if this if this conviction stands up, doesn't impact their lives at all. But what do you think was in their, was in their minds during that chase? Do you believe that they were chasing um, a, a, a black man who's running through the neighborhood? Do you think they were chasing someone they felt was a crime kingpin in their neighborhood? Um, what was it? What What is on their mind? Why? 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 I think they honestly did believe they were doing something for their neighbors and for themselves, but they were also carried away with the idea of being the hero in their demented world of um, already making Ahmaud Arbery a super criminal. Like he 
everything's local, right? So, oh, he's, we got the guy in the English. We, we're, we got him. And now they built him up to be this big criminal, and they're going to catch him. Catch him before the police. The call they wanted to make was, hey, officer, come on over. We got him. We got yeah, Travis and I got him. Boom. Let's have an award ceremony afterwards. Uh, I might get a pin uh, from local law enforcement because we did it. The Mick Michaels did it. And the, the reason I believe that their motivation was on some level dementedly pure was they released that video. They released the video on purpose because they wanted the world to see that this was self-defense. Look, people, look what we did. Look what happened. And look, Ahmad Arbery went after Travis. He had no choice. They are so blind to reality in their minds that they released the video that landed them in, in, in prison for the rest of their life. And they talked and talked and talked and talked and gave statements on body cam, gave statements uh, to police, and pieces of those statements were used against them. And it was the way that investigators put this whole case together. Ted, you know, I looked at this case and, and comparing it with, um, with Kyle Rittenhouse, right? Kyle Rittenhouse never said anything, never told his story, took the fifth. 17-year-old kid, right, believes he's acting in self-defense, but takes the Fifth Amendment. A former member of law enforcement and his son believe they're acting in self-defense. Police come. They can't keep their mouths shut. If all three of these defendants had said nothing, if Roddy Bryan said nothing, Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael never said anything, this case would have been almost impossible for prosecutors to win. Almost impossible. It could have been done, but almost impossible. Because number one, prosecutors wouldn't have had an idea of what really happened that day in this chase, right? All of that comes from the defendants. They never would have known that this video existed. There's no obligation for a defendant to hand over a videotape of the alleged crime. There's no obligation to do that. And then number three, if Roddy Bryan had just turned around and gone home after the shooting. They may not even know who he was. And the other two defendants remain silent. Roddy Bryant never even is questioned. Think about it, Ted. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and you know, if he deletes the video, any one of those things happens, this case falls apart. It took their honesty, the Big Michaels, their bravado. They were eager to tell their story because they wanted credit on some level. Look at Travis. He's all, he's got blood all over him. Can, can we wipe down? Because man, this was something else. He's the victim. And they, the other mind boggling thing is Roddy Bryant went to a lawyer and the McMichaels went to a lawyer before this video was released. They, this, some lawyer down there in the deep South said, yeah, let's, let's let out the video. So then people can see it's, it, there are several worlds in this United States and the one down in Glen County is a little I, within this community, very demented because how you can look at that video and not say, uh Oh, delete it. If you're the lawyer or never let anyone see this. If you're a lawyer is beyond understandable. How, how did that happen? Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, it's absolutely amazing. But I, I look at, you know, I look at the two cases in, in Kenosha, a 17 year old knows, just don't say anything. Uh, ask for a lawyer. These three men 
And, and to me, it goes to state of mind. The, and, and you're 100% right, Ted, the way you're looking at it. They never thought they did anything wrong from the beginning of this whole thing, which is absolutely mind-boggling because when the world saw the video for the first time, it, I mean, neighbors were stopping me as I'm, you know, I do my little walk through the neighborhood. People were saying, what, what, what happened there? What, what, what was that all about? And, and, and the jury saw it the same way. They really, they really, really did. So Ted, I, I just want you to take a moment and, and I'm interested in your perspective because I've talked a lot about it in, in comparing these two monumental cases uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the McMichaels, and, and Roddy Bryan um, happening simultaneously in the world that we live in right now with the videos and self-defense and the politics and everything else all mishmashed in social media. Um, what's, what's your takeaway from what we just experienced here at Court TV in covering these two cases? What happens outside a courtroom absolutely does permeate the walls of a courtroom. But I think that at the end of the day, Nine times out of 10, and I think in this case, it was three out of four, the system gets it right. And uh, say what you will about Kyle Rittenhouse, why he was there, what he was doing. The law was on his side. His story um, made sense to jurors. The jury made the right decision, in my opinion. Same thing in, in county, both McMichaels. The law was on the state side, and I think the jury made the right decision. Roddy Bryant, I think they made the right decision. I don't know that the um, the law is able to appropriately handle a Roddy Bryant, especially in a charged up case. And I would argue if this case didn't have the publicity, the outside pressures that the um, prosecuting office would not have targeted this case the same way in, in terms of their inclusion of Roddy Bryant. Yeah, maybe give him a deal and make him a state's witness, let him do five years, something like that, 10 years, whatever it is, and and cut the deal. Uh, didn't happen, though. We'll see. We'll continue to follow, of course, the appeals of all these cases. But as we know, in the world of criminal law, those appeals are rarely successful, and they take years. Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor. Always appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks so much, pal. Thanks, Vinny. All right, when we come back, I want to talk about a big, big lesson that was learned in the case in Georgia, and it involves race and our system of justice. That is next. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So there was a big, big lesson that I think we all should learn. Um, I think I already know this lesson having been in the system and covering trials for so many years, but I think it's for the general public and for people who kind of uh, parachute into, into trials. And, and it's about our, our jury system and how it works and how it should work. In the case in Georgia involving the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery, who was black, and the three defendants, all white, the jury in the case... 11 out of 12 were white in a county that is about, I think, 40% black, you know, somewhere between like 30 and, and 42%, I think, is, is, is the official count. It's, it's changed with the census. It's been evolving. Um, 
But what you had in this case was a, a, a jury that was overwhelmingly white. Um, you had defendants who were white, a victim who was black, and it didn't make a difference at the end of the day. It did not make a difference. But when this jury was selected, um, you had a an absolute uproar from Al Sharpton and others about our jury system and how it needs to be overhauled. And we need to ensure some sort of racial demographic for a jury. This is outrageous. I can't tell you how outrageous that statement is. Because anyone who understands our jury system and and how it works is that when you exclude jurors, the law specifically says you cannot, cannot create a jury, pick a jury, exclude a juror based upon the color of their skin. Which if you look at the inverse of it, you can't create some sort of quota for skin colors of jurors because if you say, well, we need at least four black jurors or we need at least seven Hispanic jurors or we need at least six white jurors on this jury, anytime you say you need a certain number of jurors who have a certain skin color, by definition, you are automatically excluding people of other skin colors, which our law says you cannot do. Cannot be done. It's like jury 101. And Al Sharpton and others were screaming, screaming during jury selection when it was revealed that 11 of the jurors were white and and one was black. And it wasn't the exact demographic of the county where the case was being tried. It, it, it rarely is. The inverse happened in the case against Derek Chauvin, the man who murdered George Floyd. That jury um, did not reflect by percentage the demographics of Hennepin County, Minnesota. It was... It, it had a much larger percentage of black jurors than were part of the population. So what? Who cares? We don't pick jurors based upon their skin color. It's illegal. The basis for including and excluding jurors are can they be fair and impartial? Period. Period. There is no skin color test for our juries. You have to find jurors who, after you've wadir them and they are questioned by the attorneys and by the judge, you find out what, what they're all about, how they see the world, what they know about the case, how they see it, period. You can't say, judge, we need more black jurors, so get rid of those three white ones. Judge, we need more white jurors, so get rid of those four Hispanic jurors. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. And you can't set up a quota system because if you set up a quota system, then you're automatically doing that in every single case. And I think we should learn. 
that cases are often based upon the evidence at trial, which is what we saw happen in Georgia. The evidence was overwhelming. And you, and you take the evidence, you match it up with the law, and it equals conviction based upon the facts and the law. Facts, law, not race. That's what, that's what our, our jury system is, is predicated upon. And we allow the attorneys to question and find out about the jurors to see if there's any reason for them to not be on that jury because they can't, they, they, they can't be fair and impartial. Then the judge will eliminate them. Then each side gets their own um, peremptory challenges where, based upon strategic purposes, they can eliminate jurors. They can't eliminate them because of their skin color. But if they, they bring uh, to the table something that you don't like or some reason that you believe they won't give your client or your side a fair shake, you can eliminate them. Or you can eliminate them for no reason at all. You don't like having jurors who wear green shirts? That's fine. You're allowed to do that. Shirt color, fine. Skin color, not fine. And, and for all the people who were making all this noise and wanted to redo our jury system, you know what? Watch the trials, please. Watch the trials. Read the law. And, and the other big complaint that they had was, well, the defense had more challenges, more of these peremptory challenges than the prosecution did. Well, there were three defendants, number one. Number two, that's what the law provides. And if you changed it in this case, then you'd have to change it for every single case. And it wouldn't just affect cases where it's, you know, people of different races, victim and defendant. It would apply to every case. And the system is set up to protect the rights of the criminally accused inside a courtroom. That's why they, they ended up with more challenges. Because there were three defendants being tried at the same time. If the prosecution wanted the same number of challenges, then you bring separate trials against each defendant. But you decide to bring a case against three defendants at once, you know you're going to have you're going to have less challenges than the, the all the defendants combined. But not less than each individual defendant, and they're each entitled to their own their own uh, ability to uh, uh, choose a jury and exclude uh, uh, jurors. But none of it can be predicated upon a race. And, and, and because you can't do that, you can't like retool the system to create some sort of racial quotas. It's, it's absurd, it's illegal, and it runs contrary to every fundamental uh, part of the jury selection process that says that does not go into the equation. Once either side puts it in the equation, they're breaking the law. They're breaking the law. They absolutely are. They may do it and try to get away with it, but it's up to the other side to make sure that they don't do it and get away with it. And you have a judge in the middle making all the calls. So um, I think the lesson learned here is that race has nothing, should have nothing to do with the selection of a jury ever. We don't need to change the system. The system is the best in the world. And there, there's nothing that you can do based upon looking at skin color that is going to make our system of justice and, and jury selection better. It would make it worse because then all of a sudden we are picking people to judge others because of the pigmentation of their skin, which is to me illegal, but more than that, absurd.
absurd because then you are saying that people of, of a certain skin color uh, can only be, f- like, what does it mean? It means like people of a skin color can't, can only be fair or can't be fair or will definitely see the case this way or definitely see it that way. No way. I mean, I think each individual is going to look at it based upon their own life experiences, their own common sense, and, and their own mind. And I can't imagine that every juror is going to get in there and, and rule on a case based upon their skin color, which is, what the, which is what the accusation is when you want to change a system and create these quotas. Can't do it. It'll never happen. I'm not worried about it happening because it runs contrary to every, every basic, fundamental, um, foundational part of our system of justice. Be fair, be impartial. You can be on the jury. That's it for this week, folks. Uh, Don't forget, Court TV is your front row seat to justice, but to get a ticket to that front row, you've got to watch us. We are a network. Um, If you have a digital antenna, rescan it so you can find our signal. You can also go uh, check the show notes, and we'll have links to all the important parts about the two cases we talked about today. And, of course, you can always go to courttv.com for all the latest on the cases that we are covering. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week, and don't forget, to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to courttv.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.